So we're talking about joy and using Ephesians 1 as, as a way to, to look at what, how the Christian life is, is joy. It's, it's one of joy, that becoming a Christian produces an everlasting joy in our lives. And it was something that Paul was really highlighting in his letter to the Ephesians. So we're Ephesians 1, like we were last week. And Charles Spurgeon, who many of you know, and I, I will quote regularly and, and read regularly, he was a, a pastor in London, probably the most successful church at the time. He preached through the, the mid to late 1800s at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and he had a very fruitful, powerful ministry. Many people came to Christ. The, 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 it, the history tells that people came to Christ every week through the proclamation of God's Word. God really used him in some powerful ways. And as a young man, when he was uh, in his late teens, he had a powerful experience, a powerful encounter with God that really shaped his life and his ministry. And he was giving thought to why he had become a Christian and to how he had become a Christian. To what could he attribute this is what he was sitting and contemplating. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's something of a long quote, but I want to read it to you. Listen, this is his story. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I didn't believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Bible. How did I come to read the Bible? I did read it. But what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. He was the author of my faith, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Isn't that awesome? Is that how you understand grace? This is what Paul wants us to get. 
What he's talking about here is the doctrine of election. When you think about it, how is it that you became a Christian? What is it that caused that? If you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're with us. I think it's good for you to think about this as well. How is it that the person sitting next to you became a Christian? How does anyone become a Christian? Paul speaks of this truth as the truth of election. And God's great joy in the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is teaching you, is telling you that you could never get to God on your own. God came to get you. That's that's the simple truth that Charles Spurgeon came to recognize is that he could have never chosen God if God had not chosen him. This is what he was wrestling with. This is what we'll wrestle with this morning. And it's cause for great joy. Paul expands on this doctrine, this doctrine of election, in this letter to the Ephesians. You might be sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, doctrine of election. Now that's heavy theology. That's heavy truth. That's controversial. This is... This is, why, why spend time? You know, Matt's leading us in worship, and can't worship just be this, this simple expression of faith? Paul obviously thought in writing to the Ephesians, and he goes right out of the gates with all the joy that he has and we should have in Christ, and where does he go? Right here. This is where he starts. Look at it. Ephesians 1. We're going to focus on verses 3 through 6, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, because I want to connect it. I want to add 3 to 6 to what we did last week. So this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. This is the holy word of God. It's inspired by God. Listen, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Remember, that's the joy of a new identity. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Amen. Paul, what are you talking about? I was working on my sermon last night, and I had two point sermon. The facts of election and the purpose of election. And I realized that I was not going to be able to get through it all. So I'm going to get, so I, so I morphed it. 
I'm going to give you from the Scriptures the facts or the truth about election. And then I want to talk a little bit differently than the purposes. I want to talk about what the goal of it is. What God's goal is in election. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. So first, let's start with the facts of election. I want you to see that what I'm saying comes right from the Bible. Look at your Bibles, and if you have a pencil or something, you can, you can mark them. If you have one of those fancy apps, you probably have the ability to, to highlight and stuff like that. I don't use those a lot. I, I probably should more, but um, look at this. Verse 4, even as he, where do you get the doctrine of election? Even as he chose us. Underline chose. He chose us. In him, that's one of the 40 times that he speaks about being in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he, underline this word, big word, predestined us. It's very similar to chose. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the, underline this word, purpose. Whose purpose? Of his will. Then look at verse 11 because he returns to it. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been, there it is again, predestined, underline that, according to the purpose, see it, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see this choice, will, purpose, election? It's right there. God chose us. That's the first fact. He chose us. Second fact, his choosing was before the beginning of time. This, these truths should, should hit us. If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. When did he choose you? Before the foundation of the world. God's choosing to save you came before you had any need for Him. God's choosing to save you before there was any human need for salvation because God's choosing to save came before human existence. You're quiet. He chose us before the beginning of time as we know it. John Calvin says, the very time 
of election shows it to be free. For what could we have deserved? Or in what did our merit consist before the world was made? The facts of our election, he chose us and his choosing was before the beginning of time. Number three, his reason for choosing us was because of how good we were. Uh-uh, you listening? That was a trick. His reason for choosing us was what? Love. If you're a Christian this morning, the reason for that is God's love for you. If you're becoming a Christian, the reason for that is because of God's love for you. His choosing cannot be separated from his love. You can't separate it. What does it say? In love, he did this. God didn't just, when it comes to salvation, God didn't just spin the wheel of fortune. Who's going to get it? Let's see. He just didn't spin the roulette wheel. He, didn't, he wasn't up there rolling the heavenly dice. His choosing wasn't by chance. You weren't saved by chance. You weren't saved by randomness. You weren't saved by fate. It was in accordance, verse 5, to his pleasure and his will. Church, God saved you because he loved you. God saved us because He loved us. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't by fate. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't random. It wasn't a choice He made without emotion. It says He did it according to His pleasure and His will. He did it in love. He chose us because He loves us. Because He loved us. Fourth fact. His choosing, this one's a long one. If you're a note taker, I'm going to confuse you with this one. But listen. His choosing was not based on our choosing Him. His choosing was not based on our choosing him. It was not based, another way of saying it, his choosing was not based on our goodness. His choosing was despite our badness. 
That's all the same point. His choosing was not based on our choosing him, which would be a good thing for us to do. It would be a good act. It wasn't based on our merit or our goodness. And it was based, it was a choice made despite our badness. was uh, listening to a hip-hop artist who was talking, he was expressing real questions to God about the way God acts in the world. And, and they were legitimate questions. They were, they were, it was actually heartbreaking to watch it. It was a video. And where he went, though, and it was interesting, because he started to make decisions about who deserved the love of God and who didn't. And some of his choices were really interesting. Like, who would you choose to be saved if it, if it was in your hands? And who wouldn't you choose? So we think we know. Only God can judge me. Is a phrase you'll hear often. But there's this sense in which if we determine someone to be pretty good, then God must think the same. But it fails to recognize that God's choosing was not based on our choosing of Him. It wasn't based on our good, meritorious acts that outweigh the bad things that we've done. It wasn't... It was a choice made despite the fact that we had done many bad things. It's not just that we didn't do anything to earn salvation. That's why I'm saying the doctrine of election is telling you you could never get to God on your own. You couldn't do it. That's why he sent Jesus to get you. That's, that's the truth of this doctrine. But it's not just that we didn't do anything to earn salvation. This is where I go when I think about my salvation. And I think it's the right place to go. Because I think it's humility. When I think about my salvation, I don't first go to all the good things that I've done to earn it. My mind, even 20 years, 25 years after Jesus saving me, I still think of the bad things that I've done to demerit salvation. Does anybody else do that? Do you ever think of the reasons God has? For not saving you? This is what makes the doctrine of election so amazing. Is because it's not because of the righteous things we've done. It's despite all the unrighteous things we've done that God shows us mercy in Christ Jesus and His blood covers all of our failures and sins. It's when I think about his love for me despite what a traitor I've been. When I think about his love for me despite how many times I've chosen to love other things more than I love him. When I think about the debt that I owe him that I could never pay that he paid for me. Does that still amaze you, church? Does that amaze you? That despite 
of who you were apart from Him, when you were outside of Christ, that He chose you? I like thinking about these truths from, I like hearing from different people. I like reading Spurgeon. I like reading John Calvin. Here's a quote from someone who didn't live when they lived. He's alive now. He's writing now. He goes by the name Ambassador. He's a Christian hip-hop artist. He's thinking about election, and he says some things differently than Spurgeon says it. But I think it's good to read things that maybe you're not, isn't part of the way you were brought up, the way you think, something that comes from a, from a different culture than you live in. Here's what Ambassador says about election. Let me get up in this verse right now. I'm thinking back to when we first got down. He's talking about God. I only groped, but when you searched, I found. Snatched quick, though you knew how I acted. That's what's sick. I was a pick that you drafted. A backflip with a twist couldn't be more backwards. In fact, that's classic. I love to see your tactics. You see what he's marveling over here? He's looking at himself, and he's thinking of all the people God could have drafted for Team Heaven. And when he realizes that he was someone that God picked, that amazes him. That, he thinks that's sick. That's crazy. Seems so backwards. When I think about God looking at humanity and what reason he had to out of millions lost, grab hold of me. I don't understand that. If we knew, we cleaned ourselves up for Sunday morning, we came in here, but if we knew all the wrong things and the thoughts and the words, the the worst, you at your worst, people would slide away from you. People would not choose you. God chose you. God doesn't move away from you. He actually reaches out to you. And in Christ, he came up with a plan to save you. Where all of those wrong things could be covered in the blood of his son, Jesus. Have you ever watched one of the, the drafts for professional sports? It's, a, it's, it's interesting. You should watch some of the videos for this reason, even if you don't like sports. You know, when someone gets drafted into the NFL 
or someone gets drafted into the NBA, their life is changed significantly. If you get drafted in the the first round of the NFL or the first round of the NBA, you're going to make a lot of money. And a lot of the guys that end up getting drafted in the first round of the, the NBA, NFL, oftentimes didn't come from a lot of money. And so one of the things I've noticed, they'll, and they'll do this, they want to show the human side of this. And so oftentimes they'll show video of the, the young man who is getting drafted on the phone with the owner or the coach who is getting ready to select them in the draft. They're going to watch it on TV if they're not there. Some of them are in their homes. They're just sitting there with their families. And you watch some of them get on the phone and literally fall onto the ground. Big, strong men weeping, crying. You say, well, I don't really like sports. I, I'm not, I'm not, you don't have to like sports. I'm talking about a life that was changed because they were drafted and the emotion that they experienced. Now, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is God made a phone call. And, and he said, I chose you. Come again? I just wanted you to know that I've chosen you for salvation, despite all, but all the, you know all the bad things I've done. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I've chosen you, and I'm going to demonstrate my love for you in choosing you for salvation. How does that make you feel? I mean, if, if someone gets drafted in the NFL and it's going to change their earthly life here temp- temporarily and they fall to the ground in emotion, how should you respond? How should we respond to the fact that God has drafted us? Can you believe that? That one day, the role of heaven is going to be called. In your name. Gary, come on down. Matt, come on. Dave, Adrian. Come on. Chosen. Your name on the roll book of heaven all because he loved you. Now, is there a sense in which you had to respond and choose God? Was there a sense of time where you would say, yeah, I made a decision, I chose God? Yes, you did. We must never allow, though, the moment of our trusting in Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen Him if He hadn't chosen us. 
That's what Paul is trying to say here. Those are the facts. What should be the result? What are the goals? And I want to mention two. I want to end on what I think is the ultimate goal, but I want to mention one. And before I mention it, I just want to say these these are the facts of election. There's much more that could be said. Is there more that could be said about election? Well, wait a second, Kenny. You didn't talk about how controversial this is. Aren't there questions that this truth raises? Isn't this teaching even controversial? Are there any significant teachings from the Bible that aren't controversial? Are there any? Are there any that are worth dying for that aren't controversial? I was reading Piper on this because he, he helps me with these things. He was saying that I can't think of one doctrine, significant doctrines from the Bible that would feed my soul on a daily basis that isn't have some controversy attached to it. He said it this way, I love it. We have no choice but to seek our food in the market of controversy. You don't stay there. You don't, when you go to Wegmans today to do the food shopping for the week, you don't stay in the market. You go home and you feast. But, but we do our buying and selling in the market of controversy. The most nourishing truths of the Bible have always been opposed throughout history. If for some reason you don't know that, if you don't know that any significant truth you're holding on to has been opposed at some point in history, the reason why you don't know that is because you don't know church history. That's why. Because any truth of significance, go stand in the streets and say that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And see if it stirs up any controversy. Go tell people that God in grace has freely saved that there's nothing you can do to earn it. Go tell people that and see what kind of interesting conversations you get into. If we only preach what is non-controversial, if the church and pastors will only preach what will be safely spoken in the culture without any controversy, I won't be preaching this. It's never been preached. The disciples, the 12 that we love, we read about, they all died for their faith horrifically. One was taken up, but persecuted greatly for their faith. This this word, this truth, creates controversy. We could be a church 
that would preach in such a way that, that no controversy would ever be felt, no tension would ever be felt. We could do that, and we could get people to come, and we could have a gathering, and we could sing, and we could go home, and you know what? You would be malnourished. Because you didn't buy your food in the market of controversy, and it, and it, didn't, it didn't have any, any sustaining. It's just like eating flour all day. If you eat bread all day, you won't get any nourishing calories. You won't get any protein. You won't, you won't sustain. You need food physically that's going to help you to live a strong and physical life you need spiritual food and that spiritual food often comes with significant controversy attached to it if you let piper said if we do we really want to give to the devil the right to control our spiritual menu by refusing to eat any teaching that he could create a controversy over we won't have anything to eat. What do you think the devil wants us to eat? Well, he'll feed you. He'll feed you all kinds of stuff. But you're going to be weak and malnourished. We can analyze the doctrine of election, and we should. We should ask questions. But the doctrine of election presents us with a God who defies finite analysis. We're not going to be able to figure it out. Should we keep trying? Absolutely. The doctrine of election lets God be God. What should that produce? I said I'm going to tell you two things. What's the, what's the result? What's the goal? So I talked about the facts of election. What are the goals of election? I want to give you two. The first is what should election do for us? First is assurance. It gives you assurance that God has saved you. Because your salvation is based on God's choice, God's action, not your choice, not your actions. If you could secure it by your own actions, then follow your logic. You can lose it by your own actions or by your inactions, okay? But if it's based on God and his choice and his actions, then what can take it from you? Nothing. Nothing. What If you are in Christ, you are secure for all of eternity. Does some of you need to be reminded of that? Anybody need to be reminded of the assur- their eternal assurance? I got one lady raising her hand. She's the only one in here that needs to be assured that your salvation is secure from now for all of eternity. What's that? It's on and on and on and on and on and on. No end. And it's not based on you, it's based on God. I'm confident in God's ability and capacity to see me all the way through. I'm not confident in mine, I'm not confident in yours. But I am assured of this, that the one who began a good work in me is going to take it all the way to completion. A God who chose you before time, 
who chose you because he loves you, who chose you not based on your own goodness and despite your own badness, will not leave you a victim to time, to trials, to the waves of life. He's not going to leave you victim to your continuing failures and your ongoing battle with sin. The God who chose us will never forget you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will never despise you. He will never go back on the choice that he made to save you. Doesn't that give you assurance? So many Christians, so many people who would profess to be Christians lack assurance because they look at their behavior and they say, I can't be sure. This doctrinal election seems so controversial. It's what gives a Christian assurance. You may temporarily lose your grip on God. But God's never going to let go. That truth is supposed to produce joy, confidence in your heart. Even your most recent failures can't sever you from God. If you're in Christ, you're tied to God with a knot that can't be untied. I said there's two goals. One is it's supposed to bring assurance. The second and final point is what else should it produce? And Matt, you can come on back up. Let me just back up and say, what should, how should this make us feel? And I just want to reiterate and repeat that and I hope you're seeing this. If you're in Christ, that's not, that's not cause for your own arrogance. It's not cause for boasting in self. You see, you hear what I'm saying, right? Haven't I been clear? It's not you. It's him. So what should that produce? Listen, the people that believe that they could never get to God on their own, that God had to come get them, ought to be the most joyful, ought to be the most humble people you meet. For anyone grace, go be different in the culture, in your community, in your neighborhoods, and live humbly as if your salvation was the result of God's love, God's choosing, and not the result of some way you're living your life that makes you better than your neighbor. That's not attractive. What's attractive to a lost and dying world is the doctrines that the Bible contains. 
That's what's attractive. Is the fact that God saved you because he loved you. What's God's final goal? I want to see if you can discover it with me. Look at this. Verse 6. In love, verse 5, let's go there. He predestined us in love for adoptions as for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to what? To the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, boy, Paul, you use a lot of words. What's the reason, Paul? Might be to, what's the reason? The praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. Believed in Him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit's been given to us. He's a deposit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the down payment until we acquire possession of it. Why'd you do it, Lord? To the praise of His glory. Three times He says it in just a few sentences. Actually, that's all one sentence. What's God's final goal? It has to be to the praise of His glory. It has to be for His glory and our joy. It has to be for worship. That's God's intent. Why send the Goans, if you love them, to New York? To the praise of His glorious grace. Because there's people there from other nations that have no access to the Gospel, they've never heard about Jesus, and they probably never will, unless someone leaves the comforts of Downingtown sells their home, and goes there with a, uh, with a mission, with a passion to spread the fame of Jesus. Why? So that they'll get all the credit? No. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why plant a church? Why go into pastoral ministry? Why, why live your life as a Christian? Why do what Jesus left us to do? Why make disciples? Why belong to a missional community? Why should we do all of this? To the praise of His glorious grace. God elects, God chooses, God predestines with one great ultimate goal. The glory of His grace. One more quote. Election is the great first work of free grace that takes away the final refuge of human self-reliance and casts man on the unshakable rock of covenant love. It's supposed to produce worship. It's not by accident that Paul began this letter to the Ephesians this song of joy with the topic of God's choosing. He begins by celebrating the joy of being chosen. It's the joy of being drafted. Paul couldn't get over it. He just couldn't get over it. Neither should you. 
Neither should I. Neither should we. Amen.